Whoa. So what I'm going to talk about today, by the way, just uh, to show that everything is apropos, is I, uh, I, on the one hand I had written down that the name of today's teaching is Don't Get Distracted, and uh, which is, so I just got distracted. Uh, but I'm making the point that uh, how easily uh, one is distracted by desirable things. You know, here I am. I, you know, I, my cup runneth over. I don't need anything. And all of a sudden, now I need to go to the circus in, <laughs> because it's in Sacramento. Now that I'm actually leaving the country tomorrow. So I can't go to Sacramento unless I went tonight to Sacramento. But the way the mind jumps on that, something to have. Those people who were here last week, remember that Sharon Salzberg was here with me, uh, my friend and my colleague and my teacher. And we were talking about that we have different uh, styles of meeting experience. And uh, she, she describes it as uh, Sylvia is already hearing about some potentially good thing like uh, a Cirque du Soleil in Sacramento and family, how can she go? And she said about myself, I would be thinking, ah, oh, it's a long drive to Sacramento <laughs> and to get there and I don't even know where that arena is and where will I park and it'll be late at night, how will I get home? And we would both go if somebody said, here's a driver, here's two tickets, go. But where the mind goes to, oh, I need it, to, oh, it's too hard. So uh, how many people here thought, oh, I need it? How many people thought, too bad it's in Sacramento. If it was here, I'd go here. <laughs> but you thought something. You thought something. So that I was going to, I had two names for uh Today's teaching, I was going to talk. I was going to say, "Don't get distracted." Part two. Last week was part one. That, but that's the easy way out, you know. Uh, then I thought, well, I maybe I could amend that. I could annotate that name. Could we call? Don't get distracted. Why should I not get distracted? Don't get distracted because you might forget to be kind. That would be the whole. That would be the whole teaching without saying anything else about it. If we didn't get distracted, we'd see how really it is and how difficult it is. To, it's hard to be a person. It's really hard to be a person. Uh, things happen to you all the time. And really what keeps us going is kindness. We'll sit in a minute for a little bit. And um, last week we started um, with a poem... And today we will too, with the poem by Naomi Shihab Nye about kindness. But that's why we shouldn't be distracted. But then I thought, no, nah, that's it's it's uh, it's not. I should have a different name every week, so I decided I could also call it the wows and fooies of everyday life. <laughs> Because every moment, every day, they say, wow, I could go to Sacramento to the, to the circus. Fooey, I can't because I have to be in the airport tomorrow morning at 6.30. So there's like, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. And that's the way life is. Terrible things happen. Exciting things happen. A lot of things. And how to not get distracted. 
Not get distracted to the point of forgetting to be. What's important always is not to get confused. When we get confused, we forget to be kind. If we're not confused, we remember to be kind. Then I thought I could call it something else. The the uh, One of the aphorisms that the Buddha is known for is saying, desire is endless. You know, you have something... You go to the you go to Sacramento. You see Cirque du Soleil. It's fantastic. You're all excited about it, and then tomorrow morning you get up and you stayed up too late to get back in. Fui! Now <laughs> look what I did. I'm too sleepy. I can't go to work. Or someone calls and says somebody is sick, or worse, somebody is very sick. There's the wows and the fuies, and then there's the real moments of joy in life. And there were the real moments of terribleness. That was actually the gist of Sharon's teaching last week. Um, For those of you who weren't here, I said uh, something about the emphasis in what I'm teaching these days is that everyday life by itself is a teaching. You don't have to go to a retreat. Everyday life is a teaching. And she said the emphasis in what she's teaching these days is that there are some things that really hurt, which is really an important thing, that sometimes when you hear about um, the values of contemplative practice, the values of wisdom, you think, okay, if I do that and I become wise, will I not have pain in my life? Will I not, will I be able to say things come and go? Will I be able to lose things without really mourning their loss? And she said, some things really hurt. Oh, I haven't seen you in so long. How are you, Wayne? Million years. So you have to stand up because the people here don't know you. Okay, all the people who are not regulars, who came for the first time, or like Wayne, you haven't been here in a long time, Stand up so you can say your name. We stopped. We got stopped at the Cirque du Soleil. Okay, what's your name? What's your name? Yes, Holly. And where do you live? And you're here. Well, welcome to San Francisco. Thanks for coming. Also, same place. It's beautiful here. It's, this is our winter. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> or I'm glad to say, because I live here. Welcome. What's your name? And where do you live? Okay, I'm glad you're here. And here, let's start here. My name is Katie and I'm from Petaluma. Oh, good. You came the back way on a beautiful day. That's terrific. Yeah. I'm Janet. So you came over that hill. That's a great trip, too. Did you see all the bicyclists out this morning? There are lots of bicyclists. And Santa Rosa, you also had a beautiful ride. So you had the more difficult ride and over the bridge and all that. Thanks for coming. James. Huh? <laughs> How long do you think it is since I've seen you, James? So, and when did I first meet you? Twenty years ago, I think so. At least, yeah. 
I'm very happy to see you. Corey well? Please tell him I said hello. Okay, thanks. And Susan's here. And I'm glad you came. <laughs> Did you, you well you could you must have voted before you left. <laughs> See, I thought Jeff, Jeff was going to fall off his chair. Like we issue who he votes every single time there's a vote. Okay, relax. <laughs> okay. I'm glad you're here. That's good. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to everybody. Do we all know you? What's your name? You've been here. Yeah. Okay. Everybody is welcome. But that's a long ride. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Also, the same. <laughs> <laughs> had we but known we could have had a carpool how about that huh? okay wow that's really yeah oh, wow I want, uh, Julie, uh, first of all, what city do you live in? Okay. My college roommate lives in Grand Rapids, and I talk to her every week. Um, and I just got involved with an organization with an effort called Win Michigan. Yes. Do you know about Win Michigan? <laughs> An organization called Win Michigan by a man who caused it to turn in the 2018 election, who is now going nationally to get funding and support all over the place. And not today, but when I see you again, I'll tell you, because I have just signed on to being at a fundraising and get out the vote thing for Win Michigan from afar. Uh, so when I see you in March, we're going to win Michigan from California. Okay. <laughs> Oh, this is a nice two months to sit out Massachusetts, really. <laughs> I know. I'm Henry, uh, living in Delaware. Yeah, I'm happy, that, glad, not happy, glad that you're here today, Henry. Welcome. My name is Bill, I live in Paris. Whoa. You know, <laughs> I've been in bike races where at the end of the race everybody wins some for where they can, and then they, there's a prize for the person who's in the race who came the furthest to be in the race. But you didn't come for this. Are you here on a holiday? Well, um, I used to live in San Francisco for years, and I. And tell me your name again. Bill Young from Paris. Okay. So thank you very much for coming. That Dharma Seed is great, you know. Dharma Seed has been making Dharma Talks available for 30 years for free all over the place. A big amount of its listenership is incarcerated people. 
and a, and another lot is not incarcerated people, but it's really been uh, it's done terrifically, and it's up online by tomorrow morning. Okay, <laughs> but that's so that's so sweet from Paris and from Fairfax. <laughs> I'm Christy from Vallejo. That's a long way too. Thank you for coming. I'm Deborah from Green Valley. From Green Valley. Green Valley. Where is that? Um, it's Fairfield, backside between the way to Napa. Wow. Wow, did you come together? Yes. Oh, okay. That's a far way, too. Thank you for coming such a far way. Thank you. Uh, Michael, I'm just down the road in Forest Knowles. Oh, okay. My grandson lives in Forest Knowles, actually. He's just moved there. Doug from Inverness. A little bit further out that way. Ellen from Penfield. Ellen. Was I? You were speaking there. Thank you. It was many years ago, Ellen. Where do you live in Kenfield? Where do I live in Kenfield? Near the college. Yeah, I live in Kenfield on Laurel Grove. I'm on Woodland. <laughs> so now is the point where oh, okay, now is the point because I see Ace getting all ready to say. Now that those people have said hello, I'd like to invite all of you to say hello to somebody that's next to you or in front of you or behind you. Maybe somebody that you don't know or somebody that you do know, but say hello to somebody. I see you I thought you were limping. Probably. Or wobbly drunk, I don't know. 
What? So, so, <laughs> hello, this is a very important lesson, now I'll tell you what the lesson is in a minute. <laughs> Didn't I tell you the chocolate milk story last week? Did I tell you the chocolate milk story last week? No? Didn't tell you? No, no didn't tell you. Uh, I had a friend who was a... Um, who's not living anymore, who uh, was a, a, a rabbi renowned in the renewal movement. His name was uh, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi. And twenty or thirty years ago, uh, when I first met him, we were we, be, we I was a student of his. We became good friends over the years. Uh, he's gone five years now, but the first time that he came to visit and stay at our house, he stayed a couple of days. And somewhere on the second day, maybe, he said to me, um, at, "I was putting food on the table," and he said, "I noticed that you don't uh, drink milk. Uh, why is that?" And I thought, that's a peculiar thing to notice, that you don't drink milk. If I had drunk chocolate milk or hazelnut milk or chocolate milk every half hour or something, something that would catch your attention. But normally you don't notice the absence of milk in somebody's diet unless they have big bottles of lactulase or something around. Anyway, I said, no, it's true. I don't drink milk because I'm sensitive to milk. But why did you ask? And he said, you know, from everybody you can learn something. And that really has stayed with me as a part of the general sense I have is that the whole life teaches us, the people next to us, the people not next to us, everybody's teaching us all the time. And particularly when I did that bong, let's talk for a minute to the person next to us, everybody had something to say. Everybody is talking away and listening and talking and listening. And among other things, you learn that if you talk to somebody, it, it makes you feel better, doesn't it? Wakes you up a little bit that you talk to somebody. They look at you, you look at them. I think the bottom line comes down to companioning, keeping people company. My friend and also my teacher, Ram Das, who recently, in the last month, died, said as one of his really important lines, we're all just walking each other home. Which always has such a sweet feeling about it. We're all just walking each other home. When I was a, a young girl and people were starting to go on dates or if they fancied somebody, they'd say, can I walk you home? People walked you home because they were interested in you. And then you walked that home. Your best friend you walked home and then she or he walked you home or... So I thought that was really, I'm glad we did that. And I was ringing, ringing, and it didn't fall. And, and I thought, you know, this is really all right. We're all just walking each other home. We can talk to each other a little bit.
So just not to be having too much of a break with tradition, but actually, importantly, to make the case that I do believe, as I said before, that the important thing is to stay awake your whole life, all day, every day, that there is aren't times in between. Upandita, who was a Burmese teacher, was one of my really important teachers as I came along in the uh, Vipassana mindfulness tradition, used to ask when you came in from, for your one-on-one interviews in meditation retreats, he'd say, what's happening in your sitting meditation? And then you'd tell him. And then he'd say, what's happening in your walking meditation? And you'd telling him, and you would tell him. And he would say, tell me what's happening in your in-between times. So on a traditional Vipassana retreat, there aren't so many in-between times. You sit and then you walk and you sit and you walk. But you eat and you take a shower and you use the toilet and you sleep and do all those things. But uh, you get to realize that that is not a throwaway question, that the all of all of every time is an in-between time. The, the Buddha, I, I like to tell people, is said to have said, people said, how much time should you meditate every day? Or how much time should you practice mindfulness every day? Say, so from the moment you wake up until the moment you fall asleep. When you're waking up, you should know when you wake up, if you woke up on an in-breath or an out-breath, and when you fall asleep, whether you fall asleep on an in-breath. So always people giggle when they hear that because that's how ridiculous. That's the least attentive times in the whole day. But the truth is that I think he didn't mean in that very moment. I think he meant from when you wake up in the morning until the whole day. It's not at that moment and at that moment. It's from that moment to that moment and all including maybe the most important time is when someone holds the door for you or someone holds your hand for a minute or someone smiles at you or someone does something else with you. There's a poem that I I wish I had with me uh, and I wish I also knew the name of so I could tell you. So I've, and uh, either of them I don't, because I never knew it well. But it was a, it is a poem. I'll see if I can find it. And said, did you, did you ever think about when you uh, give your um, movie ticket to the person who takes your ticket, or um, you exchange some greeting or thank you with the server at the end of your meal, or? you uh, hold the door for somebody and say have a good day as they go out do you ever think that yours might be the last voice that that person hears or that might you might be the last person who that person touched or that what you said to them may be the last sentence that they heard and then all of a sudden you think whoa that maybe I'm not so awake all day long how many people I go by Da, 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 da. and then all of a sudden something's interesting all of a sudden how to make everything interesting or the fact that if you make everything that exclusive thing it's all interesting it's all amazing actually if you would bring all the attention here I'll look for that poem and I'll bring it the next time so when we sit and we'll sit for a while now I like to um, 
give the instructions in a different way each time I'm here. But they're all the same instruction. It's all the same, even if I change the words and it sounds like, well, that's not the same as you said last week. Last week I said, we're going to be with, I think I said, who knows what I said, but I didn't say this. I remember that. Because I just thought to myself, let's say Ajahn Amaro, who was one of my teachers, who's the abbot of a, a Buddhist monastery outside of London, gives this instruction. He says, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. That's the instruction. I love that. I never heard anybody get up or raise their hand or say, wait a minute, how should I do that? How do you do that? He says it and everybody sits. Apparently, it registers with them. Do that. So if nobody says, what, what, how do you mean? They don't. He says, like Shazam, let it happen. He has one sentence after it, but I'll tell it to you again, and you do it, and then I'll say the one sentence after it. He says, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. Just do it. That is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. Then, he says, then just let it stay that way. Breath comes in and out, thoughts go in and out, feelings arise and pass away, body sensations come and go. It's not nothing. It's all of those things. Breath and thoughts Pleasantness, unpleasantness, plans, ideas. Everything arises and passes away. You rest around that in the natural peace and ease. Nothing is problematic. Only stay alert, Ajahn Amaro says, for anything that disturbs the natural peace and ease. And then pay attention to it. Just notice what it is. And then the peace and ease will come back.
it's become our way here in recognition of the fact that when we sit quietly the mind relaxes there's a certain amount of stillness in it a certain amount of ease in the body and in the mind that it's more likely that we begin to think about people in our lives who are in some particular blessing-worthy space. Either their situation is difficult and you feel touched by that and want to bless them, or their situation is one of particular joy, some particularly wonderful thing is happening with them, and you rejoice in their wellness and in their fortune and want to bless them. And it's become our habit to use this space just for communally speaking out if you want to, think it if in your mind if you don't want to speak out. Sometimes people just say a person's name into a blessing space. Sometimes they say something that identifies the person. I've been thinking this morning about my really 40 or 50 years of friendship with Sister Mary Neal who's now having more complex therapy for her uh, multiple myeloma. And I'm hopeful that she continues to be able to manage with the chemotherapy for a while. I'm also thinking about my grandson and his partner who are getting answers to their applications for PhD assignments. They're thinking about living in Michigan or maybe in Texas. I'm excited for them. Who are you thinking about this morning?
everybody that we mentioned by name and everybody that we thought of and didn't mention and all the people connected to them and all of us and all the people connected to us. May everyone have people who care about them. People to whom their lives and their stories are important. May we all continue to feel our connection to everyone, whether we know their names or not their names, or know them personally or know them not personally through other persons. May all people be companioned. May all beings be cared for. May we take care of each other. May everyone be at ease. I often, and today is one of those times, I often think to myself and say about it most sincerely that I think that the last five or ten minutes is probably the most important piece of the whole, probably the most important teaching of the whole morning. Not only does it remind me of what it's important not to forget, not don't get distracted, Don't get distracted. The whole world is getting born and dying and borning and dying and struggling to make its way as comfortably as it can, sometimes doing it easily, sometimes doing it marvelously, sometimes moments of happiness and joy. Good things happen. And to be a part of it, whatever our part is, and to be sustained by that and really um, inspired by that to really take care of each other by taking care of ourselves, by dedicating ourselves to thinking about other people, by discovering, as I think I do every time we do that, that other people's well-being and thinking about other people's well-being makes me feel better. That it, it, thinking about other people's well-being enlivens something in me that makes me feel better. If their situation is dire or if their situation is uniquely, gloriously good, I feel myself somehow closer in the whole scene of dying and borning. You know, that uh, sometimes on, on, uh, sometimes you hear it from, sometimes the, the phrase, we're all one, has various degrees of uh, understanding. And there are enough greeting cards about mocking we're all one. Um, 
like the one, the ones of monks standing at hot dog stands, saying, uh, you know, ordering a hot dog, and saying, "Make me one with everything," so that you know, sort of mocking the idea that one with everything is a is a is a hot dog, actually. But you know, you feel like I'm part of this world. People are borning and dying, and borning and dying. Um, And we're all part of it. And the best way, I think, for for me to do it, and I think for all of us, is to be aware of it. Because it it, it brings up, uh, the, last week, I used the word poignant, and I said poignant is the most important word. And I just a second thought to myself, poignant is not the most important word. Poignant is one of the two most important words. The other important word is with tenderness. If you realize, we're all just walking on the edge of the precipice, the edge of the cliff, all the time. One funny move, and it's our turn, and you don't know. You never know. People go out in the morning, and they say, I'll see you later, maybe, you know. Or, you know, that... It's, that uh, I, I mentioned last week the phrase um, existential angst or existential awareness. And we realize that we feel, well, here I am, I'm in the best of health, I'm here, it's all cool. But you don't know. You don't know tomorrow. You don't know what accident. You don't know what force of nature. You don't know what anything is going to happen. It's all very tenuous. And when I realize that, I don't, so, I don't get frightened like, <sighs> but I, the, the fright or, or the alarm is I might miss today or I might miss this opportunity to talk to the serving person or the person taking my ticket in the movies or the person somewhere that I'm just passing by and make some connection with them. Don't get distracted. You might forget to be kind. I had so many things that I brought this morning to to share and I'm just looking at what do I want to start with. Uh, Somebody's hiking in Patagonia. So I brought, I, last week, you remember, I brought a whole pile of um, uh, travel brochures that came since the, the day after New Year's, when you couldn't buy a Christmas present anymore, came a barrage of travel brochures. Now here's something else to need. You no longer need a Christmas present. Or you don't need the equipment for a New Year's party. You need... Of course, you need a Valentine starting on January 1st, but you also need to plan a trip. So a barrage of uh, travel brochures have come, including one from Antarctica. There's a guy, really cute pictures of baby penguins. So I keep reading it. Oh, I leave it around. I, millions of penguins. I look at this and I think, ah, oh, you could just go and see millions of these big penguins you could but not if you're 83 and you have a little arthritis or whatever and it's a far way away if you read these fantastic tours they cost an enormous amount of money and very few people can do that or would I mean I look at it wow I think I'll get a uh, CD from somewhere of penguins <laughs> and I'll watch it <laughs> but uh, 
but but I still haven't thrown it out or recycled it because it's really it says the greatest experience the greatest wildlife spectacle on earth. You know there are there are um, classes that writers can take about becoming a specialized writer to write for a cooking magazine or to write for a travel magazine. What are the words that you're going to use so that it's not nothing is just a normal thing. I saved some of them. I don't now I think I didn't bring them where they you have to say things like spectacular. The greatest spectacle on earth. I think it's a circus actually that's the greatest show on earth. Isn't that the, what they used to say, the greatest show on earth? Uh and show you pictures of and and it's interesting and it catches your your mind. And even though it, it, I'm not going to go I did, did, for a whole bunch of reasons, um, it's just exciting, titillating to read about it. People go, and that's all right. I, 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 I'm not faulting myself for it. But I do want to talk about how our mind gets caught in things that it might have or desire or need, which really, if the, the Buddha said, desire is endless and you know, I, there are lots of things to desire. I, uh, I'm really looking forward to. I'm, I'm going to Ecuador tomorrow. I'm going to be there for several weeks visiting a friend of mine, and uh, I'm excited about it. I, I love the friend, but in, in addition to that, it's another culture, and I'll be in Ecuador, and maybe I get a chance to learn Spanish. Or, but on the other hand, maybe I uh, maybe. The, Maybe I should have done something else. Maybe I should have stayed home. Maybe I should have not wanted to. Maybe to, if I would have stayed home, I could have gone to the circus in, in, in Sacramento. You know, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. But the point I wanted to make there is the mind is occupied all the time thinking, what can I do that's make it, that'll be pleasant? That's what we are pleasure-seeking animals. And we're all the time thinking, what can I do to make it better? I do get cooking magaz- uh, get a cooking magazine in the mail. Because I cook, it's unlikely that I'm going to cook all that stuff. But I'd love to look at it, because then you think, how many people like to look at cooking magazines? And Because it's pleasant to think, I might make this sometime, or I'll go somewhere and eat. That we, if we're not having a fantastic experience, we're thinking about having a fantastic experience. During which time, it's not a bad thing. Just saying that if I know that, Maybe I won't get too distracted by it. I, f- I had the good fortune, this, I was happy about this. I couldn't find my copy of Dharma Road for a long time, and I found it while I was looking for something else. This is, uh, it's, uh, it, this is um, uh, the Dharma of the Buddha. It's actually Zen Buddhism written in the idiom of taxi driver. Uh, because it's written, you have Dharma books that are Dharma punks and Dharma this and Dharma that, different kinds of traditions. This is taxi Dharma, and I just I enjoy it very much. I'm so happy, and I wanted to bring it because I particularly have been talking and will be talking and want to talk about the importance of knowing always what are we doing this for? I, you know that I, I'm always happy to tell the story of a man who came on a loving-kindness retreat a few weeks ago, years ago, and I was still teaching retreat time. 
And I saw him in a one-on-one interview after three or four days on retreat. And so we'd given a million instructions by that time. Do this, do that, say this in your mind, say that in your mind, do this, do that. So it wasn't that we hadn't given instructions and people didn't know what to do. But I went in, this young man came in to see me in an interview and he looked at me not in a not in a snarky way or anything, but in a serious way. He said, um, what are we doing here really? What are we doing here really? So now, I don't know what I said to him, but I would say now, really, we are trying slowly, slowly to habituate the mind to a response of kindness. It doesn't happen overnight, but it happens slowly, slowly, by noticing when it's not responding in kindness, when it has... uh, (laughs) Anybody here, when they're driving and somebody near them commits a a driving offense, cuts in front of them, passes on the right, any of those things, and they have a snarky... Anybody ever have a snarky response in your mind? (laughs) I was actually waiting for the Marin Airport yesterday, (laughs) and one taxi out taxied the other to get in the taxi line, and the one that got out taxied actually made a vulgar gesture out the window and it was at the other taxi. And it was so funny. I mean, they're there all day, every day, so it's not new to them that people get out and get into your line. But it actually gave them apparently some pleasure to do that vulgar gesture. And it was funny. I mean, it's not funny. It's a vulgar gesture. But it's like so matter-of-fact. Nobody flinches. It's just what you do. Somebody cuts you off. You make a gesture. <laughs> He's got it. So anyway, taxis. <laughs> because he teaches very good dharma. I want to read you the first page of this. And it's, a, it's the answer to the question, what are we doing here? It's called Driving with a Mind Wide Open. Hi, where would you like to go? That's what I always say to people when they get in the cab. It's a friendly greeting that breaks the ice and gets things going on the right foot. I smile when I say it and I turn partway around, make a little eye contact. It's a good question. Where do you want to go? Barton Springs for a nice cool swim. Out to the oasis to watch the sun go down over Lake Travis. Downtown, maybe to a club on 6th Street to hear some of that good Texas music we like so much here in Austin. How about a journey of self-discovery, a ride down Dharma Road? Tuesday afternoon, I'm working downtown, checking the hotel stands, cruising the street, cab 119, ready to go. I load a woman at the Four Seasons, take her up to the Capitol, then I take two men from the Omni to the Doubletree. I take a radio call at Brackenridge Hospital and load an old man with a broken leg and a hard cast. He's headed home to an apartment on East 5th, riding on a hospital voucher. He needs a lot of help getting inside. Then I'm back downtown, loading at the Hilton, taking a woman in a gaudy green pantsuit up to the university listening to her talk about how much she likes Austin and saying, yes, ma'am, I like it here too. It's a typical afternoon in the cab business. It's a lot like yesterday afternoon or tomorrow. It's a lot like your life. There's always something going on, but at the end, you wind up pretty much where you started. Then again, it's not typical at all. It's unique. It's never a completely new day, one that will go by and never return. 
is always a completely new day, one that will go by and never return. The people, the traffic, the sound, and the feel of the city, the way everything moves, it's all new and it will never be this way again. It's all in how you look at it. Cruising down Congress Avenue, I hear a whistle, see a man wave at me from across the street. I'm all over it. I make a tight U-turn, coast up to the curb in a New York nanosecond, smooth. Three men in matching dark gray suits going to an office building north on the interstate. One of the men sits in the front. He acts a little nervous, fidgety, like there's an important meeting coming up and he spent the day drinking coffee to get ready for it. He's ready now. On the seat next to me, there's a well-used copy of Sinsong's classic, The Compass of Zen. It's sitting on top of a pile of maps and guidebooks and the clipboard I use to keep track of my cab company paperwork. He picks it upstairs at the cover. You reading this, he asks. Yes, it's something to keep me occupied on those long waits at the airport. You really understand that Zen shit? It's it's pretty strange stuff, all that one-hand clapping shit. (laughs) That's Zen, right? Yes, it is. It's a koan, a puzzle. And you get that? No, not that, no. Koans are pretty advanced for me, more for full-time monks, people with the time to put into it. You can't really do that if you're driving a cab 90 hours a week. But Zen's not as confusing as people think. Most of it's just uh, appreciation for everyday life. The basics are very straightforward. There's some philosophy, meditation practice, ethics, that kind of thing. And then you go on from there, build on that. He grunts, already losing interest, leans back over the seat, jumps into the conversation about amortization, depreciation, allowance, something or other, a topic that makes as much sense to me as the one hand clapping does to any of them. (laughs) Then they get out. He hands me 20 and says with a grin, good luck with that Zen shit. Then he turns and trips over the curb, losing his reflex as he throws his hands out to catch himself. The case pops open, the papers spill out across the stones. That's Zen, right there. (laughs) That moment, the one you didn't expect. The moment when you notice that your life is one little surprise after another. The moment that you realize that ordinary life isn't ordinary at all. Then again, maybe he shouldn't have called it Zen shit. That couldn't have been good for his karma. <laughs> it's very good. It's very good. The whole, you know, I remember reading it and writing one of the uh, um, endorsements for it. And uh, it's very good. It's got the, uh, what is it, the eightfold, the eight-something highway, uh, eightfold path, eightfold highway. But uh, it's, it's, it's very good. Um, so I wanted to read that. And along with it, I wanted to read, um, because I wanted to be sure to be there, have included it. The way to be sure and sure I included it is to start with it. Really, to to introduce it by saying, I've I've said the word kindness a few times today. I think we're paying attention in order to remind us, don't get distracted, because we might forget to be kind, and life is hard for everybody. Everybody. 
Now, even if they're in the middle of a great good thing, uh, I think about that. I, I, I hope so much when I'm listening to people making marriage vows, for instance. They're making marriage vows to love each other forever. And I think to myself, I hope that that works. It doesn't always work. I hope they're the right people for each other. We do a lot of things hoping it's going to be a certain way. I think that's good. I was thinking yesterday, I was thinking about hope a little bit. We'll come around to hope again. And I remember that there's a line in Four Quartets, um, T.S. Eliot, that says, abandon all hope, because to hope would be to hope for the wrong thing. It took me a long time to figure out what that meant. I don't know if I figured out what it meant, but what I think it means is that when we hope for something, we don't know how it's going to turn out, really. Uh, Like when I hope something happens, and then it happens, maybe something very not good happens right after that. You don't know. A few years ago, there was a very unusual, terrible accident in um, Santa Barbara on the first days of the new fall semester. And a car on a main thoroughfare rode up on the sidewalk and killed, you remember that? And killed four people who were freshmen in the school. And I thought about the what must have been happening in the March before when everybody gets their acceptances and how happy they must have been to be accepted in Santa Barbara because they wanted to go, they'd applied. And, you know, you should when you get accepted. You can't know when the car is going to ride up on the sidewalk. You can't know what's going to happen. You have to behave like what you think is going to be good about this is actually going to come to pass. Otherwise, we wouldn't move. (laughs) I I always end up telling people that my mother-in-law, I got married 64 years ago, coming on 65. My mother-in-law, when uh, we spoke on the phone, and I'd say, well, are you coming for lunch? We're expecting you for lunch on Sunday. Is that right? And she'd say, we should live and be well, God willing. And it was annoying to me. Because, you know, you have to know they're coming and not coming. Because you have to, you have to shop, plan, cook. But the, the thing is, we should live and be well, God willing. And the creek don't rise, that's another expression. You remember that? God willing, and the creek don't rise, and I'll be there. You don't know what's going to happen. And if I remember how fragile everything is, then I really, that any day that I'm alive, or you're alive, or we're alive, say, thank goodness I'm alive today, what will I do? And then every time, the, the reason that our time together saying we're praying for this one, or thinking for that one, or blessing this one, myself, you don't know. Oh, who's having what today? Uh, what's going on with people? Particularly in airports, you think about what's going on with people. Uh, 
because everybody's going somewhere. Nobody finds themselves accidentally in an airport. You know, that, uh, that you, you went there for some reason, and either because you're going to go to your mother's 103rd birthday party or 100th birthday party, or, or you're going to go to someone's funeral or go to a plot, make a, have an interview for a job you really hope you're going to get, and maybe you will or maybe you won't, and... I always ask the people, well, not always, but mostly, if people next to me want to talk, you talk about why are they going, where they're going. And someone once told me that she was going, she was, we were flying to New York, she was going to New York because her uh, remaining li- living siblings met together every year on uh, the anniversary of their brother's death some serious years ago in uh, he was a fighter pilot in the second world war and uh, was killed in in a battle over Guadalcanal or I think that was the place anyway she said I meet with my um, siblings every year because we set up a foundation and every year we choose an applicant from one of those islands there to pay for their going to school. And we people apply and we get together to celebrate my brother's death anniversary and to go through the applications and see which one we pick. So you do all kinds of things in that recognition. You can just be left with a recognition we're missing this person or what will we do in this person's name which doesn't make the person back but is an expression as everybody has a tenuous life this is Naomi Shihab Nye before you know what kindness really is you must lose things feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth what you held in your hand what you counted and carefully saved all of this must go so that you know how desolate the landscape can be between regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow, you must speak it, speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes any sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes, sends you out into the day to mail letters and buy bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I who you have been looking for. And then it goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. I just realized as I was reading it again that my voice caught a little bit when it says, till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows 
and you see the size of the cloth, everybody lives with the same, the same uncertainty that make me one with everyone. We are one with everyone because we are with everyone uh, absolutely going to experience our own decline or our own death and the death and loss of people that we care about. That doesn't mean that we don't want to live. That's the damnedest thing. Remember, I think I, I did say last week about the young woman who came back to class after she'd been... Uh, gone for some weeks, maybe months, after having had a child. And she said, it's great, it's wonderful, it's terrific, very happy, wonderful child. She said, the only thing is you don't realize at the same time that you have this amazing gift, wonderful child, that you just mortgaged away your heart for the rest of your life. And that that's really true. That's really true. Everybody says, whoa, congratulations, wow. But, ah, all of a sudden... And the Buddha really did say in some of his earlier writings in talking about the value of monasticism and celibacy said, and even monasticism not making any special person dear to you. Says everyone, anything that is dear to you causes pain. And I said, thought, oh, I don't want to teach this to anybody. This sounds really... I don't want to be a Buddhist. That's what, that's what you think about everything that's dear. I certainly have a lot of things that are dear to me. Uh, <laughs> it's not meant to say don't make people dear to you. First of all, it doesn't matter. If it meant that, it doesn't even matter. Because maybe he even meant that. But we make people dear to us. That's what we do. I read an amazing book this week. I read a book called We Must Be Brave. I bought it... Um, because I was flying to San Diego and I bought it uh, in the airport and I read it during my trip and during when I came back. And uh, I thought about it particularly, I thought, uh, I like the cover actually. And uh, it had a very, it said, uh, you know, on the endorsements, it said a powerful story that proves how love itself requires courage. I thought about that, I thought that was a good line, okay. Uh, because it, it goes right with the Buddha saying anything that's dear to us causes pain. And because the person who made that endorsement was Delia Owens, who wrote Where the Crawdads Sing, which was wonderful. So I thought, well, if Delia Owens thinks this is good, then it's probably good. So it is good. But I bought it, and I read it. And so I'm going to, before we, I tell you what's here, I want to tell you the Zen story that is fairly well-known, people know the Zen story, about um, a woman in a Japanese village who has a child, she's not married, and she won't tell them who the father is. There's no father around, she didn't have a husband. So then she said it was the Zen monk who lives by himself up on that, uh, up on that mountain in that little zendo. So they go up and they knock on his door, knock, 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 and here's the monk and they say, we know all about it, this is your child, here it is, take care of it. He says, that's so. Takes the child. Three years later, the father of the child returns to the town, comes back to the town, 
has mended his ways, is prepared to marry the woman and be with her. And the people in the town go up again, knock, 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 and they say, we've discovered that he's not your child. His father, his actual father has shown up and they're going to raise it up. Give us the child. He says, is that so? He says, and gives them the child. I have discovered over the years that Western audiences don't like that story. <laughs> Why do you say I want to ask you now. You're going to teach the next couple of minutes. What did, what did you think when I told you? Yeah, what did you think? Doesn't consider the child. What else? Or what? Or or the mother? What if? No, no, no. She presumably she's taking him back with the father. But what else? But then you might say, what kind of a mother would let him go to begin with? What are your other thoughts? Yes. I, uh, because he's with me and I love him and I can't give him up too bad <laughs> what else yeah well, they do often they should be with I knew a man in France who I had be, when I was living there, on and off. Who um, uh, one evening in a in a group having dinner together, he mentioned we uh, he mentioned that he had been adopted. We were talking about the conditions in the north of France, particularly in 1939, 1940, where the the men had gone off to war and women were left to fend for themselves, and and food was scarce. And uh, he was put into a uh, uh, an orphanage, and someone adopted him at six months. And he told me the story when he was sixty years old, at least somewhere around there. And um, he just brought it up in a casual conversation. People were talking about how was it in the north of France, and he said it was very dire in terms of there wasn't food, and it, was, it just was dire to live there. And uh, so he said, you know, uh, this happened in my family. I, I didn't know I was adopted, but I found out because when I was 14 years old, I was playing the guitar in a bar downtown with a friend of mine. And as I was leaving, someone said, oh, you're so-and-so's boy. I remember when she adopted you. Then he came home. He did not know about this. Came home and said to his mother and father, hey, uh, by the way, they mentioned in the bar that I was adopted by you. And his, the woman that he spoke to said, yes, that's, that's true. Your mother could not sustain you. She put you in the orphanage. And you came to me when you were six months old. That, apparently talking about how dire living circumstances were there at that time. So someone asked him, didn't you ever... Uh, really want to meet your real mother. And he looked bewildered and he said, she was my real mother, this woman who had brought him up. And it looked like it was no big issue for him. And I wondered at the time, I thought, well, this is not to say that everybody now looking up their mothers and finding them 
I know remarkable stories of people who have found their mothers in the last year on Ancestry.com. But I thought it was really important that this man said she was my real mother. So, but I don't know that, but what do you want to say? Is it because she's a woman or she, the, I yeah, could say also that the, the monk was his real mother or his real father. She was the one that, he was the one who nurtured her. What else? You want to say anything else about the situation? Yeah. What about the mom and what about the connection with the monk and the child? But I I have a feeling that the intention of the Zen story is non-attachment. I think the important thing is that so. The child has to, you know, you're the father, the child has to stay with you. Okay. Then the child has to be given up and stay with us. Okay. The reason I told it is uh, again is because I bought this other book in the in the San Diego airport in the San Francisco airport doesn't matter it's it's by uh Francis Liardet uh and it's called We Must Be Brave and it's and cuz when I always told that Zen story I've thought that's so improbable you know come on knock 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 it's your child this is in modern times. This is 1939. It begins, or well, 40. The Blitz starts in in uh, over in England, and Southampton is being bombed, and people are being loaded into buses, and on getting on buses when their homes have been bombed, and the buses are taking them from Southampton to another town, uh, some distance away where they are put up in homes and houses where they, until they can find a place to live. And a woman get, who lives in this other place who was in Southampton but is going home on the bus, the bus empties, she's the last person getting off, and there's a child asleep on, the, on a seat in the back of the bus. So she calls anybody forgot a child, <laughs> takes the child out with her, takes it home with her, and her husband, and they are a childless couple for other reasons that it didn't work out with them for, to have children. And uh, she didn't think she wanted to have children. She thought, that's okay, that we're not going to have any. But the child lives with them, and they can't find anybody who comes to look for them. And then they find out that the child had been with her mother in a particular ho- uh, hotel in Southampton, just during the day, just when they got bombed and got in the buses, and the the building itself was bombed and the mother was killed. The child is now here. She hasn't got a mother. Nobody knows anything else about her. Three years go by. She lives with this woman and her husband, and they become, of course, very close, all of them. And then the father of the child finds out through various circumstances, traces her down. And here's this woman who's fallen totally in love. She's taken care of this child for three years and her husband. They're totally in love with the child. And here comes this man back from the war, wounded. His arm is in a bandage. And he's come to get his child. And they say, okay. It's his child. He was away in the war. 
you think that Zen story I thought it was such a constructed story that would never happen but it happens quite remarkably like the Zen story I'm really only telling it because I think there are all kinds of circumstances where you suddenly for the well-being of somebody well there's a hard decision to make it's a hard decision should he not because he was away in some in some battle somewhere and in a hospital and didn't know that the hotel got bombed and didn't know where his child was and had a long recuperation and then his wife was dead and had to find the child took him a long time to get there and the heroine has to say okay the, the, the heroine in the story is the woman who finds her on the bus and has to give her up say okay she has to go and I just was touched by it because it's not a story about the Blitz or a story about the Zendo. It's a story about what if somebody says, this is the way it is and you have to give this up. You can't have it. What are you going to say, Susan? Sure. A child needs caretaking. And we're caretaking people. We're caretaking species. I think that's the whole, maybe it's not the whole of it, but the idea of everything that is dear to us causes pain, which you might think that's a horrible thing to say, to say, okay, I'm not making anything dear to us. We do. That's just the way people are strung. How many people here talk to other people's babies in supermarket? wagons going around say hello how old are you what's your little name that without talking to the parent that's pushing (laughs) don't you do that we do that I talk to people's dogs because it's a living thing and you relate to it you say hello having a good day you're going to San Diego today far out huh I think that we are by and large we're not hermits they're, you know, they're like animals congregate together. We are collaborative animals. We bunch together. We're group animals, herd animals. We're herd animals. We care about each other. We watch out for each other. I was, uh, I, I, it, it, I learned in a book called um, "Behave" by. Uh, Oh, what's his name? Sapolsky. Uh, uh, What's his first name, Sapolsky? Robert Sapolsky is an anthropologist at Stanford who writes the best books. Uh, There's a book called Behave, about animal behavior. And we are also animals, and we have certain behavior. When we listen to each other, this is the best example, when we listen to each other and someone says, my child is in this and that way, um, imperiled. Or, my mother just got to be 100 years old. We feel, oh, we feel that about the child. And we feel, yay, about the other thing. And we don't know the mother that got to be 100, but that she wanted to go to a pizza parlor with her children, and that her children went to the pizza parlor with her, and she had a root beer. 
that it didn't happen to us, it didn't happen to me. But, but everybody felt, I'm sure, everybody felt pleased about that. We have nervous systems that respond to other people's fortune and sadness and on, on ways that are hardly uh, understandable. That suppose he's got, has an example that if um, a community of bonobos, I guess that's what he mostly worked with, or, or chimps, some small monkey type, are uh, sitting in the afternoon sun and uh, hear all the juveniles playing with each other over here. And the mothers are all sitting in a group over here. And a distressed voice from amongst this pack of young babies, a, a sound of distress comes up. The mother turns her head. She recognizes the sound of distress. If the mother is not there because she's out doing something else, the sister of the mother turns her head. Doesn't that make your hair stand on end? That we actually relate. (laughs) Did you ever do this with a group of kittens? Your cat has kittens in the closet and it's it's there for a week with the kittens in the closet. How many people ever had that? So then if you take a kitten from the mother in a nice way, pick it up carefully, not that minute, but maybe the next day, and you carry it into the next room and you put it down there, and, uh, you know, immediately, here comes the cat into your room, finds the kitten, picks it up by the nape of its neck, and takes it back. That, they, that we hear each other, we respond to each other, when you live with somebody, you know whether or not they're in a good mood or a sad mood or a frightened mood without them even telling you. They kind of give off. Isn't that true? I, mean, I don't know why you find that so surprising. I don't feel it surprising. I find it, well, maybe I'm... Crows are very advanced. You know, we call that advanced. You know, maybe it's not advanced with doing something not nice. And elephants mourn. And elephants recognize. This is the, the one I love. Is that when an elderly elephant is brought to the elephant refuge in wherever I think in Florida they have several, and uh, an elephant that's been uh, in circuses when they used to have elephants in circuses. And an elephant is getting off, a, uh, being loaded off a truck into her safe compound. And she gets off and makes a, a big elephant noise. So some elephant, you know, a quarter of a mile away hears her and hollers out because they, she remembers her from, or he remembers them from a long time ago. And... And they find when they put them together, they're old friends from some other place. So all of that stuff is don't make things dear to you. That's just that was Buddhism before it moved on to say, actually make everything dear to you. That in between, don't make anything dear to you will cause pain. Make everything dear to you, and it will cause tenderness and pain, but also joy. 
other people's good stuff can lift us up. The definition of um, empathic joy is uh, really feeling like the uh, the other person the, that the other person's pleasure, the other person's good fortune resonates in you with a certain amount of delight for them, that you want that for them, you're pleased for them. It's hard sometimes when you're when when you hear about one of your good friends who you love a lot and care about, you hear some very good fortune has befallen them or come up for them. There's a Sylvia cartoon. What's her name who draws them? I've forgotten. Uh, anyway, uh, there's another Sylvia, not me, there's a Sylvia cartoon where she's... Um, She's typing a list of snappy remarks you'd like to be able to say, uh, like um, the answer to the question, yes, you'd like to be able to say, these snappy remarks you'd like to be able to say, yes, it is unusual uh, to win an Olympic medal and uh, uh, the... uh, 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 um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, the Swedish thing, uh, the Nobel Prize and an Olympic medal in the same year, or uh, while you're out, if you could just bring me a pair of leather pants in a size two, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> the remarks that you'd like to make. That something that you'd be able to say when you somebody tells you some great good luck that they have good fortune, that you should be able to say that's great. May your joy increase. Not how come I didn't get this? Actually, I think it's important when your friend meets the love of their life and gets a raise that same day, and their manuscript is accepted by a publishing company in the mail that same day for you to be able to say, shoot, (laughs) I do wish it was me, but as long as it's not me, I couldn't have anybody that I'd wish it for more. That, that That would be, that would be the next thing. Because there's so many people in the world that if we were paying attention to them, you do feel that though, when you watch, don't you feel excited when you watch a, a football game and somebody does some amazing thing and you don't even know those players but you're amazed that they did an amazing thing or you watch someone in a circus do something that's amazing you think wow they do that amazing thing every day how do they do that amazing thing every day wow if their mother is here their mother is really proud of them I'm excited on behalf of all mothers of all circus performers why not wouldn't our life be great if we went around saying, wow, this is something. Wow. And, alas, when it's something that's painful. I had said earlier, I think, wow and fooey. But that, that, that really, fooey makes it too trivial. There are some wows and serious, alas, I wish this wasn't happening. Difficult things happening. 
but to be able to be awake in this moment. So I think I, I didn't know why the name of this book is We Must Be Brave because that, that Zen person, the Zen monk, is that so? Okay. Everybody who has a dire diagnosis in the sense that there isn't a way to cure it that says, okay, this is what I have. It's courageous to say that. I have this. I won't ever not have this. Once you have diabetes, you're never going to not have it. Once you have multiple myeloma, you're never going to not have it. But, you know, it's a little bit fooly. It's not going to be the way it was before, but I'm still here. And I can be excited on behalf of everybody else. That's what the Dalai Lama said once. There are, are there six or seven billion people in the world? Six billion? Seven. Closer to seven? Over seven. He said there are seven billion people in the world. How much more likely would it be that you'd be thrilled and excited if you were paying attention to all of the good fortune of everybody else other than you, than you were waiting for good fortune for you? Look at that. I do that all the time when I watch people do things that I can't do, like play an instrument or catch a football or do anything that's amazing. My grandfather is the person who said that thing about it's very hard to be a person who never heard of Buddha. But that's essentially what the Buddha said. It's very hard to be a person. A lot of, it's a bumpy road. The word dukkha, which gets translated in Buddhist scripture as suffering, means um, bumpy, uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable ride. Oh, that's a good way to end. I went to the airport on, I went, I went to San Diego on Saturday and I came back on Sunday. So I, I got invited to visit a friend. Uh, my friend is 95 years old, and she's a good friend to visit because a lot of difficult things have happened to her in the 95 years. And um, I know I know her granddaughter who died, and uh, I knew her son that died. And uh, she's a vibrant woman, very politically active. I went down on Saturday, and I came back on Sunday. And on Sunday, there were the tremendous winds up and down California. So I got to the airport. I was at the boarding gate, and they delayed the flight. They delayed the flight. They delayed the flight. Then they moved the gate, and that didn't seem like that made any sense. I mean, it was the same wind, whatever gate. (laughs) They moved to another gate. And then we got on the plane, and it came down the the runway. It taxied out, taxied out getting in a line for takeoff and the pilot came on and said we're going to go back to the gate now because uh, all takeoffs have been cancelled now and you have to deplane or we're going to stop the plane. You can get off if you want and uh, if you want to change your flight till tomorrow there'll be people there who will help you and if you want to continue with us we'll go sometime later today 
but guaranteed you're gonna it's gonna be a flight where that's on lockdown. You're gonna have to sit down, put on your seatbelt, and not use the restroom. The, the flight attendants are not gonna get up. It's gonna it will we'll go eventually, but it's gonna be a bumpy ride. So I stayed another night in San Diego. <laughs> I thought about it for a minute. I thought, you know, that would be some story to tell on Wednesday. That would be a good story about how heroic I was. I mean, I, as I was filing out of the plane, the pilot was there. I said, when you fly later and it's bouncing around, do you feel frightened? He said, nah, never. Uh, and he looked like, I mean, nah, he's not frightened. I mean, they wouldn't go if it's going to fall out of the sky, but... And he knows how to fly through them. But I thought, boy, that'd be a good story to tell, but I'm not doing it. (laughs) And sometimes you get the opportunity to say, I'm going to be heroic, but you have to have a reason to be heroic. And so I went back and spent another night with my friend, and then I came back. I'll be back here in three weeks. Donald will be here for three weeks, which I'm very happy about. When I come back, among other things, I'll come back with that information about Win Wisconsin. Win Michigan, Win Michigan. Wisconsin would be good too. Um, maybe we can maybe we can all go to that meeting or anyway, but apparently that big effort that this person put on is what moved it in 2018. And uh, this is why uh, this is, I ended up, I don't have my paper in front of me, but I wanted to say, uh, the thing is, even what I said earlier about uh, don't hope for anything because it might not come out, and that you know, hope for the best, abandon all hope, I don't think we should abandon all hope. First of all, we don't. It's like someone comes and say, don't get attached, you'll have pain. We get attached anyway. Everybody's online looking for somebody to be partnered with. You know that uh, <laughs> everybody wants people to love them. If not as their partner, as their friend, as their something, we're not solitary animals. You can't tell that. Don't be connected to people. You'll suffer. You will. But we do. And the other thing is, is they don't hope. We also hope. Every time we sit down to meditate without making a prayer, may my mind be good and relaxed, and may I enjoy this meditation. We certainly hope that. We don't sit down and say, well, we'll see what happens. I mean, everybody sits down with a hope that they'll feel better. Don't you? Even you don't think it's either, wow, finally I'm here. It's nice and quiet. Everybody hopes to be better. So I hope the election goes the way I want, and I'm going to do everything I can, (laughs) and I'm going to inspire you to do everything you can. So just... Before we leave, thank you for staying till the very last minute. We have one minute. When I was a child in camp, I did not like the whole July because they're working up to my birthday. And on the birthday, they would say, whoever has the birthday has to stand up. Da-da-da. We know you have the birthday, sweetheart. Stand up. (laughs) Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Ace. Happy birthday to you. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.